I wondered about your title. I mean, losing yeah. the Nobel Prize to someone who doesn't know you, and uh, honestly, we've never met. I mean, we're only right. just talking over the, the airwaves here. Yeah. But um, losing, I mean, it comes across as a very presumptuous title. Like, everybody could say, well, except for a handful of people, everybody has lost the Nobel Prize. I mean, like, it was never yours to lose, right? Well, it is in the sense that, like, but can everybody say they lost the World Series? Like, you don't It seems own about as ridiculous. Except yeah. you say, no, it's not ridiculous because your thing, if it had if it had panned out, it was a Nobel Prize winning discovery. Yeah. And actually, as I point out, you know, it's really a double entendre in that it, it really reflects two things. One is how I knew the day that we made the announcement, I would not win the Nobel Prize. From Quanta Magazine, this is The Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Brian Keating. I knew I had lost it by by either being a part of an experiment that was a competitor or viewed as a competitor by these other leaders of the BICEP2 experiment, mm-hmm. or that we were wrong and none of us was going to win a Nobel Prize, even yeah. though everyone had predicted it from the get-go. And then two, the second double meaning uh, aspect is that there are aspects of the Nobel Prize which need to be done away with. They need sure. to get lost. Yep. And so that's the that's really the essence of, of the title and where it comes from. Brian Keating is a cosmologist who went on a very dramatic journey of as he puts it, losing the Nobel Prize. He's also one of the scientists who's fascinated by one of the deepest questions in all of science today, which is what happened at the beginning? And I mean the very beginning, the beginning of time, the beginning of the universe. What's the spark that set off the Big Bang? And what happened in those very, very first moments of the universe? Why not start at the beginning, since so much of what your story is concerned with is the the mystery of the beginning. You know, I, I have mixed feelings about the Nobel Prize, as you know, but Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman once said uh, that no one ever did something because of a number. They need a story. Uh-huh. And I think the story of the universe is so much more um, panoramic, is so much more beautiful and deep than the numbers that we've come to find with such accuracy and precision that describe its composition and evolution that I thought, you know, we can start at the very beginning of the universe, if you like, as the story that started everything. And for me, the, the, the desire to want to understand the universe um, as deep a level as possible was was always the motivating factor. I was always fascinated by the night sky, even as a very young kid at, you know, age five years old, driving with my parents and looking out the window and seeing the moon and noticing, as we all have, that the moon is following me. Oh, yeah. It started the (laughs) the process of inflating my already nascent ego back then. Look, the moon is following me. Uh So I've always been fascinated by the most awesome, awe-inspiring questions that could possibly be asked. And I always felt that that quest and the question to understand what happened at the moment the universe came into existence was the absolute biggest question Uh, that could ever be asked. Perfect. That's it. That is a very big question, right? (laughs) What could be bigger? Well, to get at that very big question, Brian zooms in on a particular cosmological puzzle. Scientists in his field give it different names. They call it the horizon problem, the homogeneity problem. But here's what it really means. that It's when cosmologists look at extremely distant parts of the universe, very far apart. Like, they sometimes talk about them being 
90 billion light years apart from each other, farther apart than light can travel in the whole uh, duration of the universe up till now. We think the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. So it's hard to even think about how something could be as far apart as 90 billion light years away, but that's what they tell us. And, the, and here's the spooky thing. When the cosmologists and astronomers look at those remote parts of the universe, they appear to be virtually identical in all their properties. If they look at their temperature, if they look at their density of photons, anything that they care to look at, they're sort of almost exactly equal. They, they only vary by one part in about 100,000. Now, how can that be? That is really strange because they're so far apart that they could never have been in communication with each other. They could have never influenced each other by sending any kind of signal. There's no physical process that we know of that could have enforced this homogeneity. And yet, there it is. This raises a real mystery. The, too far, the far mystery. side of the universe can't know a thing about the other far side of the universe. They yes. never had any way to send a signal between them, right? Because the fastest the signal could go is the speed of light. And there's right. no way. That they were never in communication, yet you're telling me they look, statistically they look identical. speaking, identical. Every single pair of patches that are actually farther apart than a few degrees, you don't have to go 180 degrees, but just for, you know, kind uh, of just, just rubbing in the mystery a little bit, um, <laughs> that is what we see. And yet it's impossible in the original Big Bang model of Hubble and, and Lemaitre and others, that to have such coincidences is incredibly improbable. And it must imply, or did imply to Alan Guth and others, that the universe could be made such that these regions that we now see to be what's called out of causal contact. In other right. words, they can't influence, they can't no. communicate. Set your oven to uh, 2.726 degrees Kelvin. Okay, I'll do that. They can't do that now. But if they were initially touching and then there was a essentially a magic trick played where the universe expanded faster than the speed of light for a brief period of time, maybe trillionths of a second, that that period of time is just enough for them to get far enough out at the end of that period such that today they look like they're completely identical. What Brian's describing here is the theory known as cosmic inflation. It's the idea that in the very first moments of the universe, all these identical patches of the universe were very, very close together. They were just all part of this tiny speck at the beginning of creation. And then they whooshed apart exponentially fast in an extremely, unbelievably rapid uh, moment of expansion that would have taken, you know, a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. And so this is thought to be a possible explanation for why they look identical now, because they were once very close together, so close that they could have communicated, they would have had enough time to interact and essentially iron out and even out all their different properties. Those then got locked in so that today when we look at them, they still seem nearly identical, even though they're halfway across the universe from each other. I started to become infatuated with the idea that one could potentially prove that inflation took place if one detected these waves of gravity called gravitational radiation or gravitational waves. These, these waves of gravity would be present, perhaps, at this mysterious epoch, and they may be the only things that would persist after or during the inflationary period of time. Whenever two things are in motion that have mass, whenever they're orbiting around each other or whenever they're moving in a certain way, I could be shaking my fist at a driver you know, here in Southern California. I am generating a change in the local gravitational field. <laughs> and yeah. if, 
And if I do so periodically, or even if I don't, you could expand the motion of my arm shaking into a Fourier series, a harmonic series. And, and there will be terms at which that the matter in my arm is generating ripples in space-time itself. These are completely imperceptible. <laughs> um, uh, but now you imagine you increase I'm, I'm the size. I'm just chuckling at this image of you shaking your <laughs> fist at somebody on the highway and sending ripples in space-time over to his car. It Talk actually, about road rage. Yeah, exactly, right. Uh, <laughs> road waves. imperceptible. Right, yeah. yeah. We don't normally think about those waves here in Southern California, <laughs> but that's actually what happens. And now scale up the size of my arm. Now scale it up to the mass of a black hole and, and, uh, and then make that black hole the mass of 30 solar masses, 30 times the mass of our sun, and then have another friend of it nearby that I'm shaking my arm at, and he also has an arm or she has an arm that's 30 solar mass black hole. And as they move together in the last moments before they kiss or collide with each other in whatever way you want to visualize it, they're emitting tremendous amounts of energy in the form of reverberations in space-time itself. And, and space-time is very stiff has a high you know coefficient of restitution this this medium of, of space-time it's very difficult to compress it and expand it so to do so in any way requires a violent motion of matter imagine all the matter in the universe exploding forth if you will in a time scale of about 10 to the minus 36 seconds not over you know one second to shake your fist back and forth or <laughs> one half a second or, or a couple hundred milliseconds in the case of the black holes colliding with one another so this is the most violent motion of matter and in the shortest possible period of time ever imaginable so in that sense it will generate copious amounts of gravitational waves so the virtue of these waves of gravity is like waves of light they travel at the speed of light. And they mm -hmm. also have no lifetime. They have an infinite lifetime, if you will. So they can persist from the very big bang. And gravity goes through everything. So on the other side of the dark, you know, soundproof room that I'm in right now, if somebody brought up a black hole, I couldn't <laughs> see it, <laughs> but I'd be sucked into it, right? Because gravity goes through matter. That's how uh -huh. the tides work on the Earth, right? The moon pulls, you know, the Earth, and it pulls the oceans differently depending on what side of the Earth they're on. So hmm. gravity goes through matter. Interesting. So there's no gravity shields. We don't have yeah, a gravity Yeah, there's no screen. gravity sheet. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. There's no way to screen gravity. Um, uh -huh. And so uh, and so we realize, and other cosmologists realize this as well, that you could use these uh, infinite lifetime, you know, all penetrating objects as sort of the earliest fossils of the inflationary epoch. So like the light that we see in the cosmic microwave background, that's predominantly the leftover heat fossil relic of the formation of the nuclei. So it turns out that when the universe was very young, it was sort of white hot and opaque. Light could not get out of it. It was, the, the light would try to get out, but it would bounce off of all the little particles, the protons and electrons, that hadn't yet formed atoms. And so for the first about 300,000 years of the universe, it was dark. But, you know, there's a time when the, the protons and electrons start to bind together to make the primordial hydrogen, the, the first elements in the universe. And when that starts to happen, the light can escape. And so that is when uh, Brian and I talk about the cosmic microwave background. That's what we're referring to, the, the time about, I think he tells me 380,000 years after the Big Bang, that light starts to escape. So the analog for the inflation epoch, which occurred many trillions of a second and trillions of trillions of trillions of seconds before, that process would be revealed by waves of gravity. So Brian and his team decided they would try to detect these gravitational waves, these primordial relics, these remnants of inflation. 
with uh, a kind of newfangled telescope, an apparatus that he pioneered called BICEP. Essentially, what I designed BICEP to do was to use the light waves of the Big Bang as a type of film. And these, uh, this film is made of light. And it's so what we were looking for is perturbation in the light waves themselves that would come in this twisting, curling, swirling pattern that, that cosmologists called B-mode polarization. Uh, and that BICEP only had to do, well, all it had to do, on a, on a grand scheme at least, was detect this swirling, twisting pattern of, of microwave polarization. And if it did detect that, it would mean that the universe was suffused with gravitational energy, just like it's suffused with light energy. And it happened to have uh, the gravitational energy was in the form of these waves of gravity. Well, where did they come from? Well, they would have come from inflation. And the interesting thing about inflation is that it is the unique prediction of inflation. In other words, other models of cosmology, of cosmogenesis, of the origin of the universe, have models that predict no twisting pattern of polarization because they have no gravitational wave energy at the very beginning. And that became a crisp test that really was the thing that most fascinated me about the chance to build a tiny equals cheap telescope to detect this pattern of the aftershocks, the gravitational aftermath of inflation. The BICEP2 team thought that it saw a fantastically strong signal of the B-mode polarization, meaning the signature they were looking for of, of inflation. You know, basically they thought, voila, we've got it. And they, they held a press conference, you know, lots of reporters were there. It was a big deal. And because the team knew that this was likely to be, if not one, maybe several Nobel Prizes worth. So it was to great fanfare announced. I think it was on the maybe the front page of the New York Times. Anyway, it was a very incautious announcement. I mean, there might have been some caveats thrown in, like, well, you know, this has to be checked and we're not totally positive. But if it all checks out, we have seen the beginning of the universe. But almost immediately thereafter, as we expected, people started to ask questions. You know, did you consider this? Did you leave the lens cap on? Did you make a blunder? And we completely just decimated those arguments. We said, no, we actually are 100 percent confident in the, in the integrity of our results. Mm-hmm. But the whole time... There was a villain lurking in the background of the experiment. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's a villain that's easy enough to overlook because it's ubiquitous. It's right under your nose. It's dust, cosmic dust swirling around in the universe. Uh, interstellar dust. Brian and his team knew that there would be interstellar dust and that it could create an imposter signal, a pattern that looked just like the B-mode pattern of polarization in the gravitational waves that he was um, looking for, and it's such a villain because it can masquerade as the real signal of interest. So Brian and his team knew that they would somehow have to pick out the real signal from this imposter, from this dusty noise. What ended up happening, and part of this was was raised by Quantum Magazine by by Natalie Walkover. In uh, she gave did a bunch of interviews with folks over the summer of 2014 and including the, a scientist at uh, Princeton University, including a man who is my, uh, my current uh, close collaborator, David Spurgle, and my closest collaborator, one of my close collaborators at UC San Diego now, Raphael Flauger. And they basically raised the objection that, in their opinion, we were almost as likely to have seen this cosmic schmutz, this dust, as we had seen the imprimatur, the signature of inflation. And through a series of painstaking analyses, uh, they were able to make this claim that put a lot of doubt on our results. So that summer was really challenging. In September, 
Quanta had this piece that came out uh, that that described the kind of overwhelming evidence for our discovery and against our discovery and saying we would need to wait for another confirmation uh, experiment or refutation experiment. And that did come about four or five months later with the Planck experiment. I guess I need you to tell me who Planck is. Not Max Planck, but who's this team? What's this other team? All we need to know is their competitors, right? Yeah, so Planck was a satellite launched by the European uh, Space Agency in 2009 that had been really the horse to bet on to detect these waves of gravity. At least everybody thought so, that they would be the first to detect it from their clean perch high above the Earth's surface, a million miles away from the Earth, and with a billion euros backing them, more or less, and thousands of the world's brightest people. And so they actually had kept their cards close to the vest in that they never really let us know whether or not they had seen either evidence for the Big Bang or this gravitational wave radiation, rather, or they had seen enough dust uh, contaminating signal to overwhelm the signal that we said we saw. And okay. remember, yeah. we, we all knew that dust could cause the signal, but we didn't know that it did cause the signal because we didn't have access to their data. Yep. So we needed desperately an image that they had produced that we had found surreptitiously on the web. <laughs> and I said we tried to, you know, we begged for it. We hoped to borrow it. And then, you know, sometimes you, you have to go to great lengths to get data. And because uh, we didn't want to make a mistake. We, no. we knew it would be an incredibly important discovery. So the, the what I described in the book is what ended up happening at the very end of a period of time when we were in limbo. In other words, we didn't know if we detected the uh, birth pangs of the Big Bang or if we had detected the dust that floats around the interstellar medium. Uh -huh. And it was finally resolved in early uh, 2015, as I describe here. Okay, so Just, let's hear it. Please open your reader to page 244. Yeah. 244? Yes. Okay. All right, you want me and, to start the Planck, later the Planck team? Yeah, later the okay. Planck team. So, right. uh, who, yeah, hmm. Later, the Planck team produced an image of the Milky Way's dust polarization, finally including the bicep patch of sky, the southern hull, as we called it. It was mesmerizing. Large swaths of sky festooned with azure streamers, whorls of ochre, and swaths of amber garland. Dust was showing off in all its Van Gogh vanglory. Visible certainty, Galileo would have likely opined as he had with the Pleiades hypothesis, but this time, he'd be devastatingly right. It was over. Eden had sunk to grief. Our Nobel gold couldn't stay. Bicep 2 turned out to be a very precise dust detector. Yeah. There was some, let's, well, yeah. let's just leave it there. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, that's it, right? Our, <laughs> your experiment had turned out to be a very precise dust detector. Yeah. Um, and the dreamed of Nobel Prize was, disappeared. was not to be, yeah, disappeared. Um. So then go, please go on where you say myself. I mean, okay. you, you tell about your own reaction to this. Yeah. Myself, I felt both embarrassment and guilt. Although I had voiced my concerns about dust, eventually I gave in. I should have stood my ground. But like so many of us on the team, I saw what I wanted to see, committing cosmology's cardinal sin, confirmation bias. In the end, I was Feynman's fool, and that is a role I vowed never to play again. All right, so we should... 
discuss Feynman's fool. What, what, is, what do you mean by that? So there's an old saying, you know, if you can't, if you're at a poker table and you don't know who's the sucker <laughs> after five minutes, you're the sucker. And <laughs> right. Feynman, uh, Richard Feynman, Nobel laureate Caltech, had a similar quote and advice that he gave to graduating seniors uh, many decades ago at Caltech. And he said, uh, the first principle is not to fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. In other words, he was talking about confirmation bias. When you want to see something uh, because you're going to get tenure or you're going to get a graduate fellowship or you're going to do anything, you know, uh, get some political office, oftentimes you'll accept information that comports with your hypothesis and discard data that's discrepant. Or, you know, you'll just completely ignore any other alternative to the one that you're going down the path of. And it's sort of a version of the, you know, sunk cost where you just have so much of your soul as a scientist invested in something. It's very hard to, to do away with it. And what Feynman's admonishing people to do is to look critically at themselves and realize that they're subject to these biases no matter how smart you are and you may think you are as a scientist. And even he himself would say of himself that he is the easiest person to fool because it's something that is he wants to believe is true. Coming up, we'll go deeper into Brian's own origin story and find out what it was about his early life that set him on a path to questing for a Nobel Prize. If you're enjoying the Joy of X podcast, you'll also like Quanta Magazine. Our award-winning reporters bring you the biggest discoveries in math, physics, computer science, and biology. Quanta Magazine will change the way you understand how the universe and everything in it works. Learn more at quantamagazine.org. Quanta Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more. For me, a large part of my motivation was to kind of exceed the accomplishments of my father. My father mm. had been a great mathematician, taught at Cornell and then later at Stony Brook named James Axe. And he um, he was a phenomenal scientist and mathematician, but he was also we were very competitive with each other, uh, oh. as, as strange as that sounds, um, and certainly not the way I am with my children. But nevertheless, you know, as some fathers and sons compete over, you know, football or, you know, you think you can wrestle me to the ground. <laughs> you know, with us, it was like <laughs> scientific knowledge and, and math and so forth. So I know I couldn't compete with him in math, and, and he was uh, extremely ex successful. But... I thought I could win something that he never won, and many prizes didn't include a Nobel huh. Prize. In terms of background here, your father wasn't living with you at that point? No, unfortunately, yeah, my father was a, he was a difficult man. He he and I had a, you know, and uh, had an on again off again relationship when my uh, he it was divorced from my mother when I was about 7, and then from that time forward when she remarried a man with the last name Keating, I took on his last name Keating. And that, uh, and then I lost complete contact with him for about 15 years until I became a graduate student. And when I became so a graduate, really complete contact, so like no phone calls, no, no calls. letters, nothing. No, nope. I didn't even know if did, he was alive. Did you, really? 
Yep. For 15 years. He, he essentially, you know, as I talk about, it was a form of abandonment. And, and, and essentially, a lot of men in the 70s felt this way, you know, that they would be alienated from their children. And, and you know, I, I deny that actually took place in our case. I mean, there were legitimate things that we that he was just not a great father. And he always used to joke, you know, I don't really care about kids until they learn algebra. You know, and I didn't really, <laughs> I wasn't that good at algebra at age six. Uh, okay. you know, that's oh, one of my many, many failings. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, he wanted to start a new life. And, and so he moved from, from the East Coast to the West Coast and started a new life, got remarried himself. And so, yeah, we lost contact for about 15 years. And then I started to get very curious about him when I was basically unwittingly, you know, following in his footsteps of going to, you know, going to graduate school, getting a Ph.D. in science and, 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 and being so fascinated with mathematics. And I kept, I'd go, you know, back then the internet and the archive and things like that didn't really exist. And so I had to go to the math library at, at, at uh, Brown University and looked up his papers. And all of his papers until he kind of quit academia were about physics and, and mm. relativity and all the same things that interested me. That's and I felt amazing. like, how could it be that someone I hadn't seen since I was six had an influence on me at age 22. It was just very strange. And, and Did you have happy memories of him at any time? I mean, cause it sounds like you were quite young when he left. Yeah, I did. And, and I have an older brother, uh, too, Kevin, who's um, uh, three years older than me. And we had great memories. You know, we'd go uh, do a father's, you know, back then it was more common to have, you know, week, weekend visitation and oh, things yeah. like that. Uh -huh. So we would do that. And I even remember encounters with, uh, with my dad's uh, good friend Jim Simons uh, in the math department. So Jim Simons had recruited my father from your university, Cornell, to work at Stony Brook. My father was the youngest full professor at Cornell. I think he was 27. Wow. Uh, he was a full professor. He used to rub that in my face, believe me. Uh, yeah. I don't get uh, it. Why would a guy... I'm so weird to me as a dad to be uh, yeah. competitive with your own kid. I know. Well, I mean, like I said, I mean, guys do this. I, I have, you know, my brother-in-law is a, is a phenomenal guy. He's a Marine, a tough guy. And, and all of his daughters are, he's got three beautiful princesses' daughters. And uh, they're all like your friendly comp com competition. I mean, they compete in skiing, like who can be faster. My father was just not in a healthy way, the way, say, my brother-in-law is. Um, uh -huh. And so I felt like it, it was um, it was probably, you know, his insecurities, but um, which he shouldn't <laughs> have really had. I mean, he was extremely accomplished, as you can probably tell. But um, this was just something in his in his psyche, and I think he also had a difficult relationship with his father. I don't know what it's like. I mean, I had a very sweet dad. It was very easy for me with my dad, and and to hear about someone with with a dad who was competitive with him, who um, you know was absent. So I, I mean, like aggressively absent is the way Brian tells it. Uh, it's it's alien to me and so very interesting and and it makes me feel sad for him and him him Brian but I suppose also sad for his dad because think of what the dad missed out on it was very interesting for me also to talk to Brian about religion um, Partly, I'd say, because we have something in common. We're both Jewish now, but I've always been Jewish, except kind of atheist, whereas he began as a, a Catholic, then an atheist, and only now quite an observant Jew. So he's, he's had quite the journey. The other thing um, is that his cosmological work 
has a lot of religious implications and overlap with things like creation myths, questions about how the universe began. So there's this whole theological dimension to his work, and I really wanted to explore that with him. How does his science um, interact with his religious feeling? So I, I call myself a practicing devout agnostic in, in that I, I do observe certain rituals, in my case, Judaism. On the other hand, you know, obviously forms of, of scientific evidence that I would, uh, you know, not accept in my day job as a scientist are really, you know, not even uh, approachable in a theological sense, certainly for the Old Testament or even the New Testament. You could do science and you could do religion. And in some sense, I find them equally... Um, uh, pleasurable to think about. In other words, the deepest puzzle of all is perhaps this notion of existence and how do we get here? Is there a purpose? Is there a moral lawgiver? Um, and then, but then there's the questions of you know, how did the actual physics of the universe take place, and why can't I do both? And why can't I explore two puzzles at once? I mean, I do crossword puzzles, and I like to do Rubik's cubes. You know, mm -hmm. they're they're different. You know, no one would say just because they have cubes on them or so. You know, they're the same thing. Uh, the the Bible, if you will, the Old Testament has exactly. 35 verses about, you know, what could plausibly be called cosmology out of a total of 35,000 verses, you know, so 0.1%, it's obviously not a science book, and it's not meant to be taken as such. So my question is, the word, you know, kind of science, which as I understand it means knowledge, uh, it doesn't mean wisdom. You know, um, Stephen Hawking wrote a wonderful book, A Brief History of Time. If that book is still read in 100 years, I, I think he would be depressed, right? Because, I mean, we have made relatively little progress in, if it's relevant in 100 years. Whereas, you know, things like the ancient books of wisdom, the, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the, the Torah, uh, if these books have relevance, they've been relevant for thousands of years. And so to dismiss them when they might contain potential wisdom, I think, would be a foolish thing to do. Uh -huh. and, and, and so for those reasons, I think it's possible to be, as for a scientist, as I say, a practicing agnostic. I see. I see. I, I can't. I, this is. I want to mention something. I've been thinking about saying this to you as I was preparing for our discussion, and I have a feeling you already know this, but maybe not everyone will. I'm so I'm not very observant of mm -hmm. my Judaism, but I I'm culturally interested in it. And at one time, I took a a class um, about Jewish stories where we were meeting with the rabbi at, at Hillel here at Cornell and. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about, honestly, it was for me to meet a, a woman is what I was hoping was going to happen. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it was when I first got here. But okay, but leaving that aside. So we were talking about all kinds of different things. And he pointed out that in uh, the Torah's story of Genesis, at the beginning of everything, that the Hebrew word is bereshit Correct. for the beginning. You know, and that's so when we talk about in the beginning, God yep. created the heavens that's and the earth. In the beginning is bereshit, mm -hmm. which, and he pointed out that the rabbis over the centuries have ask the question, if we're talking about the beginning, why does the story begin with the second letter and not the first letter? Because the bait, you know, Aleph yep. bait, bait is the second letter. Why not start the beginning with the beginning? Why didn't it start with Aleph? Yep. And, and I just think it's a very, I love the, the ingenuity of these thinkers over the years. Yeah. That they, they said, look at Bereshit. First of all, it's an admonition to not ask what happened before the beginning. Because That's right. You, and even the shape of the letter, they say, the geometry of the symbol Correct. in the bait is a sort of Open. curve that points you to the future. It's a curve that says, don't look backwards, look forwards. Think about what you can do starting now. After the break, some words of wisdom, a golden calf, 
And I get a really odd gift from Brian. We'll be right back. If you like the Joy of X podcast and getting to know brilliant scientists and mathematicians, you might also like Quanta Magazine's science podcast. In every episode, Quanta's award-winning reporters illuminate the stories behind new discoveries in mathematics, physics, computer science, and the life sciences. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcasting app or at quantamagazine.org. The Quanta Magazine Science Podcast. Illuminating science for your ears. I, I love that mm-hmm. sentence in your in your book. I'm going to find it here. Yeah, about Shabbat, the Sabbath. To mm-hmm. those not speaking Hebrew. Yeah, that's right. That um, <laughs> I just like this. I hadn't heard this. It's a quote from a, a rabbi. The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. It is a day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world. What, what does it mean to you? How, what do you make of all well, that? Well, the next sentence I say, if there was ever a religious duty for a cosmologist to practice, this was it. So I, yeah, what, what, how I so? find that um, myself, my colleagues, a big part of unspoken, um, you know, uh, part of being a cosmologist is the mental toll that it takes on people, both the competitive aspect and also the, the pressure that we put on ourselves to achieve what, you know, people would only say 50 years ago would be magic, you know, trying to do magic, basically. And uh, we neglect ourselves and self-care and our mental health at our own peril. And in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is the day that God rested after arguably the Big Bang or if you, if you want to be licentious about it or whatever, um, creating the universe. So in other words, you, uh-huh. you have to work six days a week, but you cannot work seven days a week. And if you do, you're really, you might be a workaholic, you could be a slave to your job, but it's not good for your mental health. And I found, no, and sure. it's not good for your family life balance. Huh. Yeah, well, I was, uh, you know, this, this distinction of space and time really did hit me and that's why I wanted it wanted you to read that I ended up reading it myself but that little section about um, the creation of the Sabbath world. as a special yeah a special uh, a reverence for a certain patch of time yeah I, I don't know just an int- uh, it's a cool idea and I think we all as you say whether secular or religious a lot of us come to it just as a way of um, giving ourselves a break to recharge to appreciate the the wonders of our lives and our kids and our, you know, surroundings, our neighbors, our friends. Yeah. And you can, yeah, I mean, oh, I have to admit, this past weekend, uh, I saw, I had, my wife was out of town. Mm-hmm. I was with my younger daughter. My other daughter's away at college. My dog is at home, mm-hmm. as he always is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, wow, I have two whole days. I could work so much. <laughs> <laughs> and and I didn't. I didn't work a damn bit. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> <laughs> it felt really good. I just took it so easy this weekend. It felt very good. And now you're recharged. Say. And now, yeah. So so the meaning of the word Shabbat is is basically a rest, but it's not. It, it, in Hebrew, I believe it connotes active rest, which sounds weird, but it's like a rejuvenation. It's a it's a mm-hmm. sitting down. It's it's a it's and it has to be 
joyful and you're forbidden to to mourn on the Shabbat, which is just weird. Oh, I had forgotten that yeah. point. Really? Yeah. You're not allowed during the, the period of Shiva when somebody dies of seven days of sitting and, and mourning for people. On a Sabbath, you're not permitted to mourn. And it's a day— You don't mourn on the Sabbath. That's I'd right. Forgot. You, see, you can see I'm not very no, I know. Uh, observant here. I'd forgotten that. And that's a beautiful thought. What a nice idea. Yes. I think it is. And, that's and, very, very good. And, you know— Everything needs a rest. Exactly. Huh. And just to Even look at, morning. you know, how wow. the universe— you know, if you want, it was created by God. If you don't, I don't really care. I think it's important to realize that we are more than just our work. So it sounds like then your quest ended up, I mean, is this part of your tran- your life's journey, your transformation? Do you feel like the what you're calling losing the Nobel Prize has made you, I, I don't know, is this some epiphany for you? Have you become a better person as a result of this? Trip? Yeah, well, too, you, you maybe know, maybe too pat to put it like no, this. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I for a long time I felt like there are many stories in the Bible, you know, that made no sense to me. And the most um, most illustrative of those was the episode of the golden calf. The Israelites were led out of Egypt with wonders. The whole Passover, you know, theme is about these miracles that God performed allegedly for the Jewish people to be led out of slavery. You know, we're not meant to be slaves into freedom. And then 40 days or so after being led to freedom by these miraculous apparitions and, and, and acts, they worshipped the golden calf. They made a calf out of gold and they bowed down and worshipped it. I thought this is so ridiculous until uh, May of 2017, while I was deep in the throes of writing this polemic about the problems of the Nobel Prize and my own personal story in cosmology. And uh, Duncan Haldane, the winner of the 2016 Nobel Prize, he came and he brought his Nobel Prize to UCSD for the colloquium he was going to give. And afterwards, I was aghast about how many people were, you know, kissing it, taking pictures of it. You know, they were ignoring him, but they were like uh, coveting this golden graven image. And then the I found calf. Wow. all of a sudden huh. my iPhone was in my hands and I took a selfie with it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I say in the book, it's the, you know, it's the me holding the last Nobel Prize I'll ever hold. The journey he describes in the book is a classic mythological journey, if you think of Icarus flying too close to the sun. You know, I mean, it's a standard tale of hubris, right? That that's, science comes from this spirit, the human spirit, to be curious, to be almost godlike, to want to know. You know, it's, this is such an ancient myth. This is the tree of knowledge. This is Adam and Eve and the snake that we've always had this temptation. This is the animating spirit of science. You have to have the nerve to ask the big questions. And anyone who's gonna to try to ask what happened at the beginning of the universe has to have an enormous ego. You would, how could you, how dare you ask that question? You know, yet, what could be a more interesting question? I mean, I think we see all of those tensions in Brian's story, that he has that big ego, and he's not alone. This is what all scientists have who are going for, for big game like that, you know, for the big hunt. And yet, sometimes it's not pretty to look at that. And I think he's very honest in the way he describes the, the petty jealousies, the rivalry, the sneaking around, you know, the, the, the ambition, all of that. These are all part of, of the human spirit. And it's, um, it's what it takes, I think, sometimes to do great science. So it doesn't turn me off. Some people may be repulsed by it, but I, I think it's the spirit of an explorer. Well, I let me just uh, so we should close. I just want to say thank you for one yeah. thing that you did that I thought was very thoughtful, which was when you sent me mm-hmm. a copy of your book. Uh, you know what I'm thinking? <laughs> you included yes. some dust. 
you included yes. some cosmic dust. It was at first I didn't really know what it was. It's a tiny little piece of asteroid, I suppose. Is that what it is? I mean, it's a little piece yeah. of metal, but it's it's all yeah. you know, jagged looking, and it doesn't. I don't know how to even describe it, but it's. It's a meteorite, it's a little, yeah. Little... It's a piece of ancient pre-Earth solar system that's about 4 billion-plus years old that traveled through space and time, eventually ended up in, in Argentina, and then uh, sent all the way to Ithaca from San Diego. And it's uh, it's been tested by friends of mine at uh, State University of New York in Farmingdale, and they verified its composition is exactly like the type of space dust that vexed the Bicep 2 <laughs> experiment. Well, I love your sense of humor, and it's, and it's very profound, you know, this— old thing about ashes to ashes and dust to dust and and also the That's idea right. that we are stardust right that w- when the stars explode and spew out their their elements mm-hmm. That's we're all made of those atoms we were born as Carl Sagan used to like to say right we were cooked in the interiors of stars yeah, we so are we stardust. really are stardust yeah. hemoglobin and, but I, I thought That's it was right. very touching and I, so thank you for the devil or as we would say in Yiddish the schmutz that you that you spend. That's right. I, it's I, a, I guess it's probably German too. That's, yeah, that cosmic schmutz. <laughs> Very nice. Next time on the Joy of X, Munduchin applies the most abstract math to one of the biggest threats to our democracy. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, who I like to call Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening.